You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. experienced it and why she was moved to write was for her that was kind of sudden it was kind of a and it went one day and she relates what that day was like that suddenly it was all gone it's kind of awful <laughs> she calls it the god awful void um, at the same time it's characterized by a lot of beauty the question of course everyone asks is how can you be writing a book if you don't have self or an ego <laughs> What is there left? Because there's still obviously a Bernadette Roberts walking around in the world. She's writing books. She's giving spiritual retreats. What is this Bernadette if she's not herself? Who is she if she's not herself? How does that make any sense? It's a good question. And the way she describes it um, is that what happens after that, cognition doesn't cease. Self-reflection ceases. And And the energetic core of the self ceases. But you're still thinking. You're still in a world characterized by sensory experience. In fact, it's a world where for the first time in in your life, you're having pure sensory experience. Not sensory experience mediated by cognition for the first time. It's not that you're seeing things and then getting caught up in the self-reflexive process of thinking about what it is that you're seeing. You're just seeing. And that really resonates, I think, if you read a lot of Zen literature from some of the, the the great Zen sages. I'm meant to have a thing with me and I don't have the thing with me. It's going to make the next few slides really hard to do. That's frustrating, but there's nothing I can do about it now except for pausing for 15 minutes and I'm not going to do that. Can I get something for you? Oh, it's all right. I need a, I need a piece of text. It's all right. Um, okay, so that's pretty much the end of the ego and the self journey. The question is, does anything happen after that? Um, Hilariously, despite the fact that there's no you left in the picture, (laughs) apparently it continues. (laughs) There's another three or four stages past this. Um, The thing that happens next, here's the art form piece, you're ready, strap in. Um, The thing that happens next, Bernadette characterizes as a recapitulation of the key moments in the life of Christ, but in a funny kind of order. You sort of enter into the arcanum of Christ's life. So that no-self moment is debilitating. You're, the energetic core of who you are drops out. So any sense of there being the thing that's been driving you for the last 10, 15, 20 years, depending on how long the process took, is gone. People describe it as feeling like they're dead inside. It's horrible. Any sense of, okay, so you've had your initial sense of God drop out at an earlier stage. Now you've got this luminous, dazzling flame, divine flame of love that's within you which you've taken to be what God was really about, that's gone too. But what's experiencing the sense of loss? What's reflecting on the... It's characteristically hard to talk about. Yeah. All human well, language comes from the self Indeed. But you, I mean, you know how hard this is for me. You know, you yeah. know the kind of yeah. care you've got to take from within the... Most random, you know, the cranky... <laughs> <laughs> it's frustrating. I know, it's frustrating. Yeah, well, I have to read it myself to kind of see how she handles it. Yep. Well, mostly she talks about it in the third person. Yeah. She's not really talking about how it feels for her. She's at this point where she just kind of goes, 
and then this happens, rather than talking about what goes on for her. Just to pause there for a second though, you can sort of see that if that's how things have gone for you over the last 25 years, A, the difficulty of trying to communicate that to anybody else, and then the frustration <laughs> that arises when other people try to tell you what must have happened to you in place of what actually seems to have happened to you. Over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, you know, it'd get a little bit, you'd get touchy. I'd get touchy. What about you? All right. What I think, emotions don't stop happening. Right? Your response to the world doesn't stop happening. It's not moving around. You, you might feel like there's no you left, but you're still here. This is the puzzle. So the next stage after the no-self experience from Bernadette's point of view is incarnation, or resurrection, sorry. Coming back into the world and learning how to be in the world when all the things you've taken to be you are no longer there for you to, to anchor yourself with. Um, and this is the thing I need, it doesn't matter because I'm running short of time so I'm gonna run through them. And then Pentecost and then Ascension where um, albino dudes come down and point at the sky. Was that spelling from like a Mormon thing? It looks like it, right? Yeah. Um, uh, just a, I don't know what that is, it's a pretty mural from, it's an um, embroidered thing from someone's parish church, I think. I just thought it was, there's an awful lot of bad Pentecost art out there and I just thought that was quite a nice one. Um, they're just, uh, that's obviously a classic icon. This is a Russian painter called uh, Mikhail Nesterov, who was painting through the Russian Revolution, kept doing it. Um, but all, look up Mikhail Nesterov, he's great. Such beautiful, just transcend, transcendent, translucent images of, Life. Anyway, obligatory art form, okay, some kind of Mormon thing. Uh, ascension, and then ultimately incarnation. That's Ascension as well, sorry, that's Dali. A little bit of Dali. The mysterious sunflower in the middle, for reasons we can't quite explain. And a little bit more Dali to incarnation. So through this process of kind of, some of the stuff she describes really vividly is um, it relates to, oddly, some of what Jeffrey was talking about in the last session, that the, the, the merging of the general and the particular, the sense that she, she writes about, um, during some of the early stages of that movement, kind of falling backwards onto grass and turning her head to the side and seeing a, a flower, perceiving a flower, and there being no distinction between the particular flower and all flowers that have all existed. And that not being a cognitive, I mean, we, we can, you know, you can do that. You can look at a chair and kind of, it uh, reminds you of all the chairs that you've seen in the past, but this is kind of the sort of collapse of that into perception so that it's not a reflective moment, it's just the instantaneous experience. It's not something you have to cognitively construct, it's just present. Um, anyway, I commend the books to you, it's really interesting. The difficult thing with Bernadette is she's relating her own specific experience. She finds enough places to link it to early Christian literature and the literature of some of the great contemplatives, particularly Meister Eckhart. She links it to quite a lot of writing in Zen as a way to try and work out, because the struggle for her is to try to work out, is this just me? And which is the concern if someone's writing particularly about their own life, is this just something that's happened to them? Has she undergone some kind of, has she got some kind of psychiatric disorder that she's getting confused between her contemplative life and the psychiatric disorder? Or is this something that's characteristic of contemplative life? And she's, I mean, I, I think it was kind of, she tried to read it as there's something wrong with me for quite a while because it felt like something was really wrong. And she kept reading and reading and reading as, and has found enough connection points that 
that it seems legitimate to write about it. So there's a whole bunch of people that are in, in a sort of Bernadette movement that kind of follow around and kind of try to uh, repeat the feed, if you like. But she's interesting at the very least. Any questions? That, that concludes the Bernadette bit. Nothing else. So many questions. <laughs> Ask one. Wouldn't know where to start. <laughs> I'm still a little vague what happens after you get through the second period of spiritual darkness. Mm -hmm. After the no self experience? Yeah, I mean, you're right. Yeah, that's the bit I'm vaguest on. Okay. I've got to say. Um, partly because the path to no self doesn't really go into it in a lot of depth because it was written before, it was written sort of just after, you know, sort of 10 years after that had happened. And I think she hadn't really, I think she thought that was the end of it. Right. Um, those last few moves, which kind of recapitulate moments in the story of Christ, as to whether they recapitulate the experience of Jesus, who knows? Or what, what actually might have happened in Jesus' life, who knows? But they seem to recapitulate the symbols in the Christian story. Um, that stuff's all in some of her more recent books and I haven't had a chance to... The Real Christ is a spiral-bound um, <laughs> volume and it's like that thick. So it's like a serious commitment. Um, Hopefully I've given some picture of why uh, that extremely irritating um, forward to Bernadette's book is as irritating as it is, or, or, or why there might be some legitimacy to its irritation. Because um, trying to explain this stuff when you've spent you know, 25 years trying to make sense of what's happened, trying to make sense of it in terms of the patristics, and then coming out with an interpretation of Christology that from your point of view is perfectly well grounded, but is really badly at odds with most things being taught in Certainly in Protestant seminaries, even a lot of what Roman Catholics wind up, you know, coming out and teaching um, in parish churches, and then having to just have that fight over and over and over again with people telling you you're, you know, a heretic and insane and whatever, and kind of going, okay, no, I'm not. <laughs> you don't get it, and go read some stuff, and then we can talk. Basically, I'm, my job here is to explain this to people that are ready to hear it. If you're not ready to hear it, go away. I don't, I don't want to talk to you. I don't have time. But we do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> So we, we tell people not to bother talking to us because they don't get it? You mean no, 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 no. We fight off the, uh, you know, you're a heretic, so this is, you know, what you're saying is totally. crazy. Yeah, indeed. So you sort of have some sympathy for the, for yeah, the battle, yeah. right? All right, my fifth and last uh, cranky woman, who's, she's neck and neck with Mary Collo for the least cranky of the lot, really. I mean, she... <laughs> Uh, she's surprisingly good-natured, given that it can't have been an easy struggle, is Margaret Barker. Okay. Now, the interesting thing, I think, about Bernadette Roberts and Margaret Barker is that in both cases, you would be completely legitimate in going, this seems crazy to me, it doesn't make any sense, I don't think I believe anything that you've just said. They're totally fair enough. And, and Margaret says this herself. Uh, she's drawn together a thesis about early Christianity based on an extraordinarily broad range of very thin evidence, and she's come up with something which I find convincing, beautiful, um, and it's transformed the way I think about Christianity, really. I, I, find this, I find this really wonderful. She freely admits it, it's like a geodesic dome woven out of long bows. <laughs> it's, all, it's all very thin evidence drawn from a huge range of sources, and it's extremely difficult to even follow some of what she's saying. It's one of those, I don't know if you've read one of these books where someone goes, okay, so if 
we look at the Qumran evidence, and then there's this thing that's over in Islamic scripture, and then there's this thing that we get from some of the Ugaritic material. So she does textual stuff and archaeological stuff. This is the stuff I was kind of saying, you may enjoy this part, Ed. Um, but there's this, this stuff from Babylon, and then there's this evidence from some of the Pharaonic stuff over here in Egypt. And if you go over here, you can and see this all connects up. And if you sort of connect that to this over here, which I prepared earlier, and you'll notice that in the midpoint, if we hang a pendulum, that that points to this point here. And that's what I think we're talking about. You know, it's tricky. What is she actually trying to say? What she's actually trying to say, and I'm not going to go through how she got to it, she's written, I think, 15 books or something. Um, I have no hope of getting across all of it. I've skimmed my way through three or four of them. Um, so, you know, it's a traditional thing at, at AJC Conclave to say, I'm not a scholar, but... I begged with Jeffrey to open this talk with, actually, I am a scholar, <laughs> and um, uh, I'm a scholar, I'm not a scholar in this area, so uh, your mileage may vary. Caveat emptor. Um, okay, that's Margaret's thesis. The puzzle that she's trying to solve is that the formulation of Christian belief reaches a very consistent core really early in the development of the religion. The formulation of Christian liturgy also reaches a really consistent core really quite early in the religion, especially given the situations in which it's happening, right? This isn't all happening around a single cult center, it's happening in a kind of a diaspora situation all around the Mediterranean. And it's kind of weird. And there's lots of explanations for why this is. There's lots of theological explanations that are all about borrowing from Neoplatonism. Um, that's all fine. They're all good theories and they all kind of work. That's all okay. Um, but Margaret's question is, well, how, are there other explanations for how this might have occurred? So her thesis is that one of the things that organizes early Christian belief and praxis is that it's a legitimate memory of the belief and praxis of the first temple religion of Hebrew people. She explains why, and I'll, I'll get to why. She spent 25 years developing this school of thought, there's a whole school around what she does um, to increase your perception of her legitimacy. She's greatly loved by Mormons, <laughs> which I don't think helps the case so much, but still. Um, she has a lot of critics. Uh, she has a lot of people that think she's a genius. So it's one of those situations. You kind of just have to. So let's go on a little ride, and we'll go through some of what Margaret says, and you can see how you feel about it. Um, and if you think it's interesting, then I can recommend some books to try and read. I've already received, I think, 20 or so text messages from Tim. Uh, this, right How about this? Sometimes I'll tell you more in conclave. <laughs> late, in, late at night. <laughs> All right. So this is a bit of key historical data, because this stuff wasn't in my head, so I'm betting for some of you it's not in your head. So I thought I'd just sort of paint it out a little bit. All right. Here's the timeline that's relevant to, to Margaret's argument. Um, there's a certain practice of Hebrew religion that happens during the period of the First Temple and up to roughly 640 BCE. In 640, King Josiah becomes king of the Kingdom of Judea. And um, during that period, between 640 and 609 BCE, uh, the book of Jeremiah, I think, am I right? King Josiah's in Jeremiah, um, records that a priest in the temple, I'm sort of I don't know the exact words, but I'm imagining he's kind of digging in a cupboard in the back of the temple and he finds this book uh, called The Five Books of Moses. Um, and he brings it out, blows, they blow the dust off and go, aha, uh -huh, there's all this law in here. Wow, we've been doing things really wrong. 
So he instigates a series of reforms of the temple. He removes a whole bunch of objects from the Holy of Holies. They destroy certain, they change a whole bunch of liturgical practices because these are all characteristic of imported idolatry that's kind of crept into temple life. So this is the received understanding of how Judaism was formed, right? Um, and in, certainly in Protestant seminaries, you get a whole lot of this, right? So idolatry, and this is why we don't have any of those graven images that the filthy Catholics have, and so on, right? Because it's all about the Josiah Temple reforms. Um, there's a second wave of reforms that go beyond the temple out into the rest of the kingdom, where they destroy the pillars in the high places and the sacred trees that are characteristic of the worship of Asherah. Um, and there's a lot of speculation about what that's about, really. <laughs> so dramatic things have changed around the temple, dramatic things are changed in the folk religion that happen in the rest of the kingdom, outside the temple. It doesn't probably go as far as changing what happens in people's households, but certainly in, in, sort of, in terms of other cult centers. Okay, so just after that happens, <laughs> um, there's a little peculiarity of history that at some point the Babylonians invade and they take the Jews captive. Now, if you know anything about how history actually works, they don't take hit newsflash, they didn't take all the Jews captive, right? In the same way that the Muslims didn't invade Spain and drive all the Christians away to the north, the Muslims invaded Spain and drove the aristocracy and the priests away to the north, and the ordinary people who actually ran the economy stayed precisely where they were and kept doing what they were doing. So the same situation in, in Judea. So the priests and the aristocracy get taken captive kind of as hostages, to Babylon. It's a decent possibility that some of the common people are going, hey, this is awesome. I love being Babylonian. <laughs> so the timing's really interesting. There's a dramatic reform of the, of the worship in the temple, and then all the people that manage that, the king and all the aristocracy and all the priests in the temple, are kidnapped. So there's a kind of a gap. Uh, so the exile goes for not that long, 10 years. Um, and then in the coming back, almost, the temple's destroyed. 587, the temple's destroyed. Okay, sorry, no, the exile goes a little longer. The exile happens in a couple of ways, from 597 to 587. In the battle in 587, the first temple's destroyed. Um, and then the exiles return 520 BCE, so about 70 years later. And then finally, uh, the temple's slowly rebuilt after the exiles return and kind of capped off during the period of, of Herod in 74 BCE. So a couple of things. Um, Barker's, Barker's idea, sorry, did somebody have a, someone's chair made a squeak that sounded like, could I? Sorry. <laughs> Hebrew religion has always been centered in Judea, but even at this period, as early as 640 BCE, we know that there are people practicing the Hebrew religion. I've been careful in my phrasing, I'm not saying Judaism, I'm saying the Hebrew religion, um, in all sorts of other places. It's practiced in Babylon before the exile and during the exile and after the exile. It's practiced in Arabia. It's we know that there are Hebrews practicing, scripture records there are Hebrews practicing the Hebrew religion in Egypt. There are, there's cult centers and temples in Egypt that practice the Hebrew religion. And this is described somewhat pejoratively, I think, in Jeremiah because they're, you know, filthy heretics and they do something awful, you know. So there's multiple places where being a Hebrew is practiced that are outside the realm of the kingdom of Judea. So, if one's interested in what first temple Hebrew religion was like, and if one's interested in the hypothesis that it was really quite different from second temple, and that 
some aspect of that belief and practice was preserved through the Second Temple period, this place is one might go looking. So scripture is an obvious place, which has a whole lot of detail looking at the Hebrew and looking at particular words that if you point them one way mean this, and if you point them another way mean that. Then you go looking for places where that word differs between the Qumran text and the received text. And how that between the Masoretic text and the Qumran text, or between the Masoretic text and other sort of older versions of Hebrew scripture. And looking for clues that maybe it's been pointed in each of those ways in different places. And indeed this happens quite a lot. Scribes are constantly kind of just, you know, just want to, the same as the redaction that we see in the Gospels that we were looking at this morning, you know. In, in the interest of being helpful, it would be really easy for someone to read this the wrong way, so we'll just clarify that in the right direction. And the interesting thing with Hebrew, and most of us probably know this, but for folks that don't, Hebrew is a language that's written largely without vowels, so you've got to learn what the vowels are in order to be able to pronounce what's written on the page. Scribes sometimes add vowel points to the consonantal text to make it clear. But that, because uh, things because the way roots and derivations work in Hebrew, roots are the consonants, and putting different vowels between the consonants is what creates the derivative words from the root words. So you can really quite dramatically change the meaning of something just by changing one or two vowels in a word. You can drive it that way rather than that way. So there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff you can get by doing that kind of textual study on the Hebrew and Greek scripture. Um, Christian Apocrypha, uh, and entertaining the idea that, okay, so maybe Apocrypha is not crazy stuff, Maybe it's stuff that didn't fit within the worldview. It was stuff that was a legitimate expression of something that was around at the time, but it didn't fit within the worldview of what was becoming orthodoxy. The Dead Sea Scrolls, Ugaritic material, other stuff from the Near East. Um, fan fiction. Sorry? Fan fiction. Fan fiction, yeah. <laughs> so she looks at all these different places, and, and, and some, of the, some of the lovely stuff is looking at, at uh, archaeological material, and particularly like stuff that survives in wall art and the kinds of depictions that happen in wall art. Um, or murals or cult objects that were found in Judea at various times from around this sort of period, and what sorts of confusing depictions, obviously, sometimes that are, that are in those things. So you see what I mean? It's kind of drawing this really long thing. And, and, you know, it's a perplexing timeline, right? All this is happening 500 years before Christianity is even a gleam in our Lord's eye, right? So it's a bit, you know, what on earth? How on earth could this possibly make any sense? Nevertheless, her kind of claim is that that period of reform, exile, destruction, and return kind of institutes in the middle of Judea this sort of second temple, where even the architectural memory of the first temple is now gone. So a kind of resistance on the periphery. And what we see on the peripheral areas of, of the Hebrew diaspora is people that kind of resent this felt imposition of this new, this innovation in what it is to be Hebrew. But the Josiah reforms aren't some memory of how it was really supposed to be, or at least this is what people felt at the time, that it was an imposed version that was felt to be more correct and clean. So there's all these interesting sorts of clues that there's really, there's not a lot of evidence that any of the Moses stories were ever spoken about prior to the exile. But it's only the patriarchal stuff that was prior to the exile. All the Moses stories happened pretty much and were included in the text in the exile. This is a really robust area of debate. There's all sorts of different theories. There's theories that have been prevalent for the last 100 years that are now getting overturned, and there's multiple schools of thought, no one agrees. So let's just go straight to what the consequences of this are. That's the method, that's what she's thinking happens. As a result of the study that she's done, what has she come up with? So I'm just gonna give you a couple of things, and I think they're really interesting things. It's like 13 minutes to six, so we're gonna to have to talk about the rest of this over dinner. But, okay. 
the ubiquitous sense that you get from the Old Testament is that if you're a good Jew, there is only one God, and his name is Yahweh, who is sometimes called El. But they're the same guy. Okay? Everyone's good? We know this because all the angels' names end in El, which means God, and Yahweh is El. Margaret, on the basis of her study, goes, well, not exactly. <laughs> in fact, if you look at the text, those two words never actually co-occur. There's substantial evidence that in a lot of places, El has been replaced with Yahweh by scribal addition. Um, and if you entertain the possibility that Yahweh and El are different gods, that there's a first god and a second god, and you go looking for evidence of that in the text, kablam, you find it. It's actually, it actually parses out quite neatly. We don't go looking, because <laughs> for the last 2,000 years, we all know, obviously, that Judaism is a monotheistic religion. So there's no point looking for this, because what, it would be crazy talk, right? It's one of the first monotheistic religions, so why would you go looking for such a crazy thing? Okay, so let's look at these two gods. Let's just entertain this possibility that there's two gods, one called El, one called Yahweh. Who are these guys? Let's deal with El. Also called El Elyon. Um, so when we see the term God Most High, this is who we're talking about. He's also referred to as the Ancient of Days. Uh, we might be familiar with the First Father. Okay, this is all one personage. So this is a very transcendent, abstract, impersonal God, the Father of all, the origin of all things. This is who we're familiar with as the one from the Apocryphon of John. It's a really, like it just pops out. You kind of go, okay, right, yeah, I know who this guy is. I've met him before. This is the origin of all things. There's a different translation of the, of the phrase, the Ancient of Days, which I think is really quite nice. The antecedent of time. That which is prior to time. I think really catches the, the sense that you, you get in the Apocryphon of John. Okay. So, Barker's contention is that when Jesus talks about the Father, he's talking about this guy. So who's the second God? The second God is Yahweh. yod heh vav -Hey. Now, just that little moment of kind of going, what if God Most High is not yod heh vav -Hey? Okay, we're in the middle of Trinitarian theology, bam, just like that. So the core of this contention is, what if the early Christians didn't invent, you know, didn't have to do a kind of weird neoplatonic kind of, you know, jive dance around, you know, trying to be monotheistic Jews and also wanting to sort of honor Christ as God? What if they were just going, yeah, we know who Jesus is. Jesus is the Lord. Yodhe-Vavhe through uh, the Septuagint, through the Greek translation of the text, is always referred to as Kyrios, exactly the same as Jesus is referred to. Yahweh is Lord. He's referred to as Lord. El is never referred to as Lord. He's always referred to as God Most High. It's extremely strict. So, okay, how does that make any sense? We're sort of sort of wrapped up in well Yahweh's God, right? And then Jesus is the Son, and the Son is the Logos, and that's obviously Philo or Plotinus or something. Maybe it's not. <laughs> one of the characteristics of Yahweh when you dig into the text is Yahweh is the Son of the Most High. It's one of his titles. Yahweh is an angel amongst one of the many sons of God. So the sons of El are the angels, and the chief among the angels is Yahweh. Each of the angels, the Old Testament is quite specific about the matter, or Enoch is quite specific about the matter. Like a little fuzzy. Enoch's in the Old Testament, or should be. <laughs> remind me to, edit, remind me to, uh, to publish a, a uh, correct edition. 
<laughs> There's a, uh, see, if I was a scholar, I'd be able to quote you the chapter and verse of where this is said, but it's said that the nations are divided amongst the angels, so that each of the angels becomes the god of a nation, and Yahweh is the god of Israel. Yeah, that's in... It's in one of the psalms, certainly. In one of the, the beginning of one of the psalms is a bit of a muck. You can never interpret it right because these God names really screw it up. Right. And but the notion is that Yahweh is the central God of all the other gods. Right. And certainly from a Hebrew perspective, right? Because he's he's the angel of the nation of Israel. Well, well, yeah, exactly. So from their perspective, he's he's the dude. Okay, great. This doesn't really explain to us how this connects to Jesus. So let's. Uh, I'm just going to pause. It's just a couple of points. So in Barker's theory, the temple, the first temple, is a microcosm. It's a, it's an image. He says, looking further into it, <laughs> of the whole of creation. And the holy of holies is day one in the story of creation. The holy of holies is the unity beyond time and matter. It's the world of angels and the kingdom of God, where time and space haven't really yet emerged. It's the realm of the Most High. Um, what holds the visible and invisible creation together is the covenant and the atonement ritual where the great high priest goes into the holy of holies and pronounces the name is the ritual where it holds, that renews the covenant and maintains the binding between the visible and the invisible worlds remember religare, right? also levi the holding together now here's the trick, here's the little quirk. The high priest was anointed, remember the word, <laughs> um, and became the manifestation of Yahweh. So in first temple language, the high priest was Yahweh. He was the human manifestation of Yahweh to his people. Titles Paul gives Jesus is our great high priest, I think. So the process of incarnation is symbolized by the priest's vestments, Jesus invalidates the second temple and institutes the Last Supper, which happens at Passover, but is a better representation of the atonement ritual, despite when it's happening in the calendar, as a genuine atonement which brings back the ritual and the liturgy of the first temple. And so we proclaim Jesus as Lord and our great high priest. And he's anointed, just like the high priest was. He is Christ, the anointed one. And so, there's a whole book, um, Echoes of First Temple Liturgy and Christian Praxis, um, where Margaret goes through all the places where there's resonances between the earliest liturgy that we know of in Christian tradition and things which it seems were done in the First Temple, based on some of the echoes that we see in the Cormoran literature and in Enoch and, and other stuff. She's got a whole bunch of stuff where she talks about Revelation as being an account of First Temple Liturgy, a memory of First Temple Liturgy, and a lot of Gnostic stuff as being First Temple liturgical memory um, happening in our old tradition. So there's a speculation that what one of the things Jesus passed on to his first disciples, some of the early patristics talk about this, they talk about the written down stuff that the Lord passed on to us in the, in the Gospels, and then there's the secret knowledge, which is passed on to us in the mysteries. That's kind of explicit in some of the early church stuff, that Jesus passed on liturgical practice to his first disciples, and that was carried on through, through early history. I'll pause there for a sec, because that was quite a lot. <laughs> Does anybody want to kick the tires or slam the door? 
I'm interested to see how the how the I don't even know how to phrase the question, so it may be good. What what was the connection that drew the first temple liturgy through to Jesus? Was it just racial memory, quote unquote, or you know, the stories of the community or she doesn't really advance a firm theory. There's some obvious places you could go look, and Egypt's an obvious place. Since litur we know liturgical practice, Hebrew liturgical practice was at, there is a temple in Egypt that persisted through the first temple period. It's quite likely they would have largely preserved first tem temple practice because they weren't in the kingdom of Judea during the difficult period. So perhaps he was bringing it back from there. Mm. Maybe it's a Qumran thing. Maybe it's the therapeutic. Maybe it's something else. Um, but there's these constant rumors that Jesus was educated in some kind of school environment that was outside of the Palestine area, and maybe this is what he picked up while he was there. Pure fantastic speculation about where he may have gotten that from. Uh, Yahweh predates the Hebrews, predates mm -hmm. the Israelites. We're pretty certain that it's not proven, but it's, it looks good. And um, of course, Yahweh is associated with the South, one of the areas being the Sinai, which is on your way to Egypt. It could quite be that. Maybe Jesus ran into the Canaanites or the Midianites somewhere along the way. Yep. I don't know. There's enough of a robust tradition that's got a that, that's a genuine that's genuine Hebrew religion as opposed to the kind of imposed Hebrew religion that, that, that those idiots back in Palestine are still practicing. Oh, with the L and all the rest of the Canaanites. Yeah, but I'm saying he might have run into those people and, and kind of oh, yeah, yeah, come yeah. to and understand that there was another because we know that there were temples there. I mean, Kirtilin Ajwood is there. The other thing I think is, is sort of, it's kind of cute. <laughs> In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What's the Word? If you're a Hermeticist, it's yod hey vav hey. It's kind of obvious. <laughs> it's kind of slapping in the face, right? So, okay, here we are. We're two persons into the Trinity. We've got El, God Most High, the Ancient of Days, the Antecedent of Time. We've got yod hey vav hey, and Jesus is anointed as the human manifestation of Yahweh. So Yahweh is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God Most High, which is his title all the way through the Old Testament. It's kind of one of those, it's like, you know, seeing the burn marks in the corner of the film, I swear. If you kind of, if you make the mistake of falling under the evil spell of this dangerous woman, as I seem to have done, it's kind of like, huh, yeah, obviously. What are you saying about the epithet El Elyon again? Because El that epithet is from El, not Yahweh. Which one? El Elyon. Uh, yeah, I know. Right. So oh, that's, okay. that's the first father. Oh, right, right. Not right. Yahweh. Yeah, okay, okay. Does she do any looking around into what's left of the uh, Samaritan and Karaite communities? It seems to me that their unadulterated practice could bear some. Really interesting, right? right? Samaritan communities would be really interesting because that's Hebrew religion. It is, exactly. But it's not Judean Hebrew religion. And they're not quite the only ones. There's like two or three communities that, like, will go maybe as far as the Pentateuch and then all that other stuff that's, you know, newfangled city slicker stuff. Yeah, sure. The, none of the stuff that I've read, but there's a lot of Margaret I haven't read, so. Okay. Uh, look, we've got two minutes. Okay. I don't want to leave this bit out. Um, okay, the last speculation, this is in a great book um, called The Lady of Jerusalem, um, asks who is the Queen of Heaven, okay? Queen of Heaven, of course, is one of the many titles of Mary. Now, as we all know, Mariology is a hideous, heretical imposition that was brought in by some kind of weird Ishtar Isis cult and imposed on the church by crazy Alexandrians sometime in the 2nd century and perpetuated by the vicious apostates of the Roman Catholic Church. 
Genuine Christianity, as we all know, is pure, patriarchal, and monotheistic. Or not. Um, Barker does, I can't go into any of the details because I, I don't have time and I, I, I'm not thoroughly enough across the text, but this is a great book and I really recommend reading it. Um, I can give you the correct title later, but uh, First Temple Liturgy, it's pretty clear. It actually says it in Jeremiah during the discussion of Josiah's purges. There was a figure in the temple called the Queen of Heaven. Um, she was identified with wisdom. She's the mother of Yahweh. And in First Temple times, the royal high priest becomes the human manifestation of Yahweh. And the king's mother becomes identified with the Queen of Heaven. Of course, this has the superficial resemblance this seems to bear to... Mary and Jesus is, of course, completely coincidental and has no bearing on anything at all. <laughs> so she's manifested as the Queen Mother. Interestingly, so there's a whole bunch of stuff about how uh, in the Second Temple period, um, we do it the right way and we go into the temple and we do not do as our ancestors do and face towards the sun, because they're crazy types. We face towards God into the temple. Um, so what's that about, actually? What's this facing towards the sun stuff? Because facing towards the sun, towards the east, is one of the characteristics of Christian liturgy. Right? It's one of those things that happens really early in the church. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff that suggests that the Queen of Heaven uh, was characterized with, by offerings of bread and wine, and that she was identified with the sun. So the reason the shoe bread disappears from the temple after the first temple period is because the Queen of Heaven gets removed from the temple. Uh, Philo says at some point, wisdom is God's archetypal luminary and the sun is a copy and image of it. So, so when you say uh, the Eucharist is a solar liturgy and so it shouldn't have any Sophia in it, you know, well, maybe. <laughs> it all gets very messy. So there's a, I love this. It's really intriguing because there's a, there's a huge number of places where it lines up both with Orthodox Christianity and with Gnosticism. It's really fascinating. You get back to this First Temple stuff and we seem to be getting handed a trinity that looks pretty much like a paleo-trinitarian conception from early Christianity. Um, and it weaves together this kind of interesting, so who's Yaldabaoth in this picture? So we've got this Yahweh who comes back from Babylon as a Yahweh who's saying, I am the only God. There are no other gods before me. Get this queen of heaven woman out of the temple. She's not real. Get, you know, I am El. There is no higher God. I am the only God. Sound familiar? This kind of claim sounds kind of reminiscent to me somehow. Anywho, I think that's nearly it. Okay, so one of her titles is okay. So one of this is this is long bow speculation, but one of the titles that's, that's assigned to God in the Old Testament is El Shaddai. That's classically translated as God Almighty. Okay, El God Shaddai, mighty. Sure, that's one way of translating it. There's uh, a not uncommon etymological speculation. Should can mean destruction. So it can mean God the destroyer. Sorry? Shad means breast. Bosom. So um, there is a common etymological speculation that rather than meaning God Almighty, it could mean God with heavy breasts. Now, as a, <laughs> as a complete coincidence, one of the archaeological puzzles in parsing this monotheistic religion of the Hebrews is the wide prevalence of these all over Judea in archaeological digs. They found seven or eight hundred of these in ordinary households. 
They're called Judean pillar figurines. Now clearly this is some weird outside cult object that's got imported into Judea um, that people are secretly doing in their homes. Maybe. Or maybe this is objects to venerate the Queen of Heaven because you can't get to the temple all the time but you still want to venerate perhaps the most important divine figure that you've got in life. We possi and possibly the Shaddai being both rest and destruction is the kind of is a sort of a pun, you know, because mother goddesses in the Near East are often both fertility and destruction configured in one, in one being. That's not, that's not that unusual. Okay, that's it, pretty much. My summary at the end is really, okay, this is who we've talked about. The last little piece I just wanted to, to talk about is, is that power, periphery, and rage thing. Um, each of these women are choosing to make their, devote their lives, 20 or 30 years, to um, taking a stance which is at odds with the mainstream of theology or the mainstream of the institutions that they're trying to, to live and practice in. And as a result of that, standing their ground and trying to say what they want to say, a lot of them have faced a lot of difficulty and persecution, uh, mansplaining, um, people trying to tell them they're wrong and stupid, and often because of their gender. Unsurprisingly, several of these women end up being really angry. I've done a little bit of work uh, trying to deal with racism in the gay community, and one of the deepest things I've had to learn in the work of doing that is that you, when you do stuff uh, with um, ethnic minority communities, one of the first things you've got to deal with is they're always angry. They're always pissed off. Um, and if you want to help, if you want to be an ally to people facing that sort of situation, the first thing you've got to learn is how to sit through anger. And the anger is often directed at you, personally, <laughs> as a representative, illegitimately or legitimately, but as a representative of the people that, that they're willing to, to oppress them. So if you want to be of any assistance, you've just got to sit there and wait for the anger to get vented and not take it personally. In general, I feel that if you're encountering anger, I think there's a real value in... Um, I've got... I couldn't adequately express how much benefit I've got from the thought of these five women over the last four or five years. Each of them has been really pivotal in my... in shifting and transforming my understanding of things helping me see my tradition in a different and fresh way. Fresh yet traditional way, which is I think the gifts each of the five of them bring. Um, I wouldn't have that if I switched off the second they started getting cranky at me specifically, Maggie Ross being a, a really canonical example. Um, so here's my concerns. I think these are interesting ideas. I commend these five authors to you and, and the stuff that they write. Um, and I commend to you the practice of listening through anger, really. Um, particularly when you're dealing with people that you know have been marginalised historically, uh, because I think that's a really important thing. Um, that's it. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> happy to answer questions over dinner, because we're late, so um, we have to finish on time, because we have to get the Joey's First Eucharist. Thank you for your kind and generous attention. What time is that Seven. Well,